first today to how we can usefully interpret events in Ukraine this week uh, with the terrible news this morning of the rocket strike on the train station and the awful scenes earlier at, at the town of Butcher dominating many thoughts. How do we put them into a wider context of progress and setbacks? Where might the conflict be heading? Is any real circuit breaker on the horizon? Well, David Kilcullen is well accustomed to reading both the obvious and the implicit in the conduct of modern warfare. He's a former soldier, well known to RN listeners, a specialist in counterinsurgency, and he's visiting Australia right now, so I'm delighted to welcome him. Uh, Hello and welcome back, David. Hey, Geraldine, and welcome back to you too. Thank you. (laughs) Look, in a very interesting webinar for the Australian Institute of International Affairs this week uh, that I heard... You actually said the most important events in the Ukraine war haven't yet happened. Now, what what are you getting at there? What are you looking for at a range of levels? So the point that I was uh, making in that webinar was that essentially the Russians have gotten themselves now to a point where it's extraordinarily difficult to see how they can resolve this in any way that's favourable, you know, to the to the initial outcomes that they were looking for. But it's also really hard to figure out how they can back out. So they're sort of stuck. And at the same time, the Ukrainians, uh, because of the atrocities that we, you, you hinted at earlier, have become much more hard-edged in their view of negotiations than they were even a week ago. So the war is in something strategists call an escalating stalemate. So it's getting worse, but there's no necessarily sign of an outcome. Mm. Really, the, and the reason that I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the the most important events haven't happened yet is primarily because the most important major international player uh, to not say anything definite about the war in Ukraine so far is China. And China has, at different times since the beginning of the war, given hints that it might be interested in participating in a mediated solution. But we're yet to see a really firm declaration from Xi Jinping in particular about China's attitude. And I think that's um, one of the few potential uh, pathways to some kind of resolution here. Well, you said and and quoted people involved in the debate that was really raging uh, under the scenes, behind the scenes in China. Yeah, so it's just for context, uh, Xi Jinping needs to uh, make it through a very important event at the end of this year in Beijing, which will be essentially the decision point for the Chinese Communist Party as to whether he stays in office for effectively um, indefinite period or uh, whether they, they move to an, another leader. The Chinese Communist Party has become quite factionalised in recent years. And one of the ways that that's playing out is that there are differences of opinion among different people in the CCP about how China should respond. So some people are saying, we need to back the Russians here. We need to let them weaken the West uh, and we'll be in a position to, uh, you know, to exploit that. There's another group that's pointing out that the risk of secondary sanctions, that is China getting sanctioned by the US and the West for um, supporting Russia is very real. Um, The EU is actually a more important trading partner for China than is Russia. So there's a concern, you know, a a, a real world concern there. Um, And then there's a third group of people, uh, most prominently a guy called Hu Wei, who's a well-known think tank analyst, 
uh, put out a, an article several weeks ago saying, this is crazy, the Russians are toxic, we need to back off from them, uh, all they're doing here is, is going to harm us. So you've got at least those three different positions. And then the PLA has its own, the, the Chinese military has its own factions who have different points of view about what should be done uh, with respect to Ukraine. The main and most important person that hasn't opened his mouth on any of this yet is Xi Jinping. Mm. We're just not hearing much of this in the West, are we, this active debate? It's so hard to reach in there, particularly with all the close down with COVID. It is. And, of course, the Chinese are going through the, uh, you know, their most severe mm. uh, COVID outbreak now with the Omicron outbreak in Shanghai, which has caused, you know, severe concern about whether they can continue the COVID zero policy. Uh, look, you also touched on unintended consequences, which I think preoccupies many more of us than before, uh, of the impact of sanctions, for instance, and the difficulty like, of planting the huge Ukrainian wheat crop that is so significant for people in the Middle East and North Africa. So, I mean, we're now realising there are unintended consequences that led us to where we are now, but there could be a whole lot more coming, couldn't there? Absolutely. Sanctions, by definition... Are, are double-edged um, because they restrict the ability of uh, Russians to export, but also of you know countries to import. There's a double whammy effect uh, in terms of agriculture, in particular, because Ukraine and Russia together are uh, responsible for a very significant portion of world wheat exports. And for Australian listeners, the country that I think is most important to consider in terms of the impact there is Lebanon, which is already in a very major uh, economic crisis, has been for you know almost two years now, and gets almost 90% of its uh, wheat export or its wheat imports from Ukraine. And of course, Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov are closed. Uh, those seas are now mined by the Russian Navy with sea mines. Um, and of course, no one's harvesting or planting or, or shipping wheat in a country that's fighting for its survival. So there's a so really there could be real hunger issues, couldn't there? Emerge? Absolutely. And hunger and, and unrest. And the last time we saw a similar pattern to this was right before the Arab Spring, um, caused by weather events rather than war, but a similar dynamic. Bread riots, the worst of all. Look, before we analyse what must be going through the minds of the under-pressure Russian military right now, this terrible evidence uh, of this uh, a strike on the... Uh, train station with women and children and Bucha um, and <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the, the targeting of civilians is just disgraceful. Uh, Neighbouring Estonia's Prime Minister, Kaja Kallas, wrote a very powerful essay this week, which I'm going to quote from. Deportations and filtration camps take me and every other Estonian family back to painful memories of repression under Soviet occupation and gulag prison camps. Placing civilians at the front line is a Russian war tactic. The proof she said, there are more civilian victims than military casualties. And that's not as sort of even accounting all the people who've been forced to flee. Now, is this a fair comment in your view, David, based on your knowledge of various countries' militaries and particularly the Russians? Do they have this reputation? They do. Um, and I would point to two particular events. Uh, one, the recent uh, conflict in Syria, where Russian commanders were involved with the Bashar al-Assad regime's planning for so-called humanitarian corridors, which would cause refugees and people seeking to evacuate from war zones to concentrate 
on particular sort of designated safe zones and then repeatedly, I mean, almost like clockwork, the civilians trying to evacuate would be shelled or rocketed and hundreds would be killed. And it was a way of intimidating uh, the civilian population and forcing people to uh, to knuckle down under the regime. And uh, we've seen exactly that same pattern in Ukraine where there have been a series of humanitarian corridors designated and then strikes happening on those. The other thing that other example would be Grozny, and I mentioned this in the webinar at AIIA as well. Uh, it, you know, the one indicator of how significantly the Russians damaged the city of Grozny and Chechnya in 1994 was that, that when they finally occupied the city, they struggled to find a single undamaged building in which they could put their headquarters. They'd effectively levelled one of their own cities. And for residents of cities like Kramatorsk, which you mentioned just now, or uh, Mariupol, that's certainly on the cards, right? Massive damage to mm. the urban environment. And of course, the third thing that we see is just blatant lying about what's gone on. The, the Russians are saying contradictorily, um, that on the one hand, all the evidence out of Bucha is fake, that it's fake videos generated by the US. And then the second contradictory line of argument they're making is that all those killings really happened, but they were done by the Ukrainians. Um, and on the Kramatorsk strike, they're saying the weapons that were used there were so-called Totska U, which is a, um, a weapon that NATO calls a Scarab, which is in Ukrainian service, but the Russians claim is not in their service, and they, they did indeed retire that, that weapon system a number of years ago, but a lot of analysts have said they've most likely brought them back into service for the war. So they're not trying to come up with a consistent, you know, narrative here. They're just throwing smoke to try to prevent anybody from pinning them down to what are pretty clearly uh, Russian-backed atrocities. Look, what is the general view of the of, of where the Russians have made mistakes. I mean, I suppose I'm talking about the command structure in the modern Russian military, which you talked about. I mean, may, maybe I should say, what was your view before this war began with all those stories of modernising? What is it now, given what's emerging? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book on this, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. I've been studying the Russian military modernisation pretty heavily since 2011. Many of us, um, including me, were surprised by just how much they sucked when they actually started to... Uh, launched the conflict in in February. The other big surprise from my standpoint was the fact that they ditched a model that was working for them, which you might call the Crimea model of being sort of incremental, grey zone, um, you know, riding the threshold, not, not doing enough to generate uh, a response, and instead went to a full-on, you know, punch in the face, uh, you know, tank invasion of uh, of Ukraine. That very much surprised me and it surprised a lot of others, including uh, the Ukrainians, by the way, um, because the method that the Russians had been using was working so well for them. Um, President Biden even said in January that, yeah, if the Russians do just a limited incursion, they'll probably get away with it. Um, and it's an open question really as to why they decided to go in a different direction. But I think we can guess um, as, as to what that may have been. And I think now, after multiple attempts to achieve their initial objectives, they're trying to 
sort of retcon their war aims and mm. pretend they were never intending to, to capture Kyiv. I just last night watched that Winter on Fire, the uh, Ukraine fight for freedom, which actually was an extraordinary documentary. It came out in 2015 about the Maidan mm-hmm. revolution. And, I mean, the very th- the depth of the uh, Ukrainian commitment, that's what really stunned me. So if they, if they think for a second they're going to be able to occupy that place and keep it under control, I mean, <laughs> that's got to be a pipe dream. Yeah, well, they wouldn't be the first to come up with a, you know, overly rosy estimation of regime change, right? So we should, you know, we should note that we've we've been in the same place too. Um, but for sure, what seems to have happened here is that the pre-war assessment by the Fifth Service of uh, FSB, the Russian Internal Security mm-hmm. Service, um, w- which was directed at Ukraine and argued that you know, Vladimir Zelensky has 27% approval rating, mm-hmm. 40% of Ukrainians have said they won't fight in the event of an invasion, right. so Ukraine probably will be a pushover. Turns out when you, you know, roll the tanks and start the mm-hmm. artillery and invade somebody's country, um, people start, you know, mobilising and Ukraine's that, in a fight for survival. We learned know? that with Gallipoli many years ago. Look, we'll have to have you back because there's more to discuss. David Cullen, thank you so much. Thanks, Geraldine. And uh, you can look at that uh, AIIA webinar on YouTube uh, as well, if you'd like.